Hi, this is Ted Berg for the For the Win podcast, joined on the phone right now by a very exciting guest, a three-time MLB World Champion, the 2012 MVP, San Francisco Giants catcher, Buster Posey. Buster, how's it going? Doing well. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for doing this, and, and you're speaking on behalf of New Era today, so why don't you tell me what you're doing with New Era? Yeah, I'm actually down here in, in L.A. today. Um, going to take some pictures and uh, do some some video stuff with New Era. They've been a great great partner of mine over the last few years, and I've uh, been very supportive of um, mine and my wife's pediatric uh, cancer awareness push that we started last year. And um, so I'm looking forward to, to getting down here and doing some stuff with them, and hopefully designing a cap uh, again for some pediatric awareness that will, uh, you know, some of the proceeds will go to, to research and, and helping some families out that are having a tough time. Uh, very cool. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about catching, if that's okay, since it's an area of your expertise. Yes, sir. Uh, so last year, the the Giants made uh, 575 pitching changes. Not the not the most in the league, but uh, one of the most in the league of all time because the the game has just trended toward so many more relievers in games. Is does that is that a special challenge for a catcher, and has that changed uh, in the in the time you've been in the big in the big leagues? Um, I think it's definitely changed. Um, I think the challenge that you deal with as much as anything is um, it's not necessarily the amount of changes, but it's how much, uh, I guess, work or knowledge you have of the pitcher coming in. There could be a time where, you know, some guys are rotating up and down from AAA, and it might be a AAA pitcher coming up that, um, that I haven't had much experience with. So I think that's where the challenge comes in because the more times that you, you – can work with somebody generally, um, you know, that leads to a little bit more success. And is that from just knowing a guy sort of mentally and emotionally, or does it have to do with like the nature of his stuff and, and exactly how you want to sequence it? I think it's all of it. I mean, I think it's, you figure out how guys tick. Everybody ticks a little bit differently. Um, but stuff wise, you, it's hard to know. Um, you know, you can talk to a guy before they go out there and they can tell you this is, the pitch I like using in this situation or um, I like to stay away from this. But until I can kind of see it and get a feel for it, um, it's, hard to, it's hard to implement it, you know, without that experience. How much of what you're implementing comes from, you know, the research you're doing and the, and the information you're looking at beforehand? Uh, I'd say, I don't know. I mean, that, it depends on, on each pitcher, but it just I, I would say half is the generic answer, but sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. I, I've always been a guy that tries to use instincts because I think at the major league level you can scout all you want, but the guy on the other side, the guy in the batter's box or the pitcher on the mound is constantly making adjustments, so you have to be willing to go away from the scouting report and, and adjust as the game goes along, and that's you know that's the fun part. And to what extent are you thinking about, you know, with, with particular hitters, especially guys in the division, uh, you know, the, the prior times you've seen them, and, and I guess even if it's not the exact same pitcher, just how you've pitched them with, with similar pitchers in the past, or is it just a, something that you adjust, you know, game by game and a bat by a bat? Yeah, again, <clears throat> that's the fun part, you know, especially being a catcher because it does become a little bit of a chess match, and you're you're trying to recall in your mind how you might have got this person out, or how they might have, you know, had some success against you, and how you want to try to counter that, or do you want to try to keep exploiting the same weakness, or 
you know, it's it's a lot of it's got to be feel. You got to understand the situation in the game. You got to understand who's on the mound, and uh, there's a lot of a lot of variables that come into play when you're when you're trying to make a decision pretty quickly. When you're going through all the all the pitching changes in a game, because obviously a a, a lot of that is is uh, you know, and and it's unavoidable, and it's obviously the the correct strategy in many cases, right? Bruce Bochy has one of the best reputations uh, for managing his bullpen of any manager, and yet it is a lot like like we've seen, just a lot of changes. Uh, do you think that? There is a way, you know, that you can that that could be sped up, or is that just a, a part of the game that sort of needs to be there? You mean just from uh, the sheer amount of time that the game takes being sped up? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, if you, you know, I think MLB's doing the best they can with there's a clock now for guys when they come in, trying to keep them under a certain amount of time before they they get going. Um, there's not much more you can do than that, I don't think. Well, there, I mean, some people have suggested maybe limiting pitching changes by by saying, well, every time a guy comes in, he has to face two batters or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm not me personally. I'm not a big fan of that. I just think that that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I enjoy the strategy side of it, I guess, and um, you know, I, I know as a hitter, I'd be looking my chops because maybe then I'm facing somebody. <laughs> Yeah. that I match up with a little bit better than, you know, some submarine righty that's sinking it at 93-94. But, um, you know, I, I don't personally see that happening. Uh, for the uh, – the obviously it's a long season, and it seems like it's an, an especially long season for a catcher given just the, the physical takes toll it takes on a body – how long after the season do you do you rest? Do you rest at all? Uh, do you you know do you just sort of maintain a little bit and then start working out again, or are you right back at it? Uh, you know, I think it. Again, I just kind of listen to what my body's saying. If I feel like I need to take a a week or two and do absolutely nothing, I'll do that. But I generally feel better if I get back and do something as far as like a bike or elliptical an elliptical just to. And I keep the blood pumping, and then uh, weights. I'll, I'll take a little bit more time off, you know, a month or so before I get back in on the weights, just because I think all the pounding that your joints and ligaments and, and muscles and everything takes over the course of the year, you've got to give them a little bit of time to recoup. But personally, I don't want to sit too much because I I, I tend to feel worse um, if I just sit around. And what about uh, mentally? Is there a point in the off season where? Uh, it's sort of is is there a turning point like where maybe at the at the end of the season or or in November early December you're thinking like okay I need a little bit of break just to you know clear my head a little bit uh, is there a time you know in the winter when it when you start getting jazzed up for spring training again? Yeah, generally it's about right now. I mean we're about a month out from reporting the spring training starting you know the hitting and throwing aspect and agilities. Um, generally it's about right now when that. The, the focus is, is heightened a little bit, and you you start to mentally get ramped up for another year. And naturally, as a catcher, you'll be at spring training before the rest of the position players. Uh, I We hear the term pitchers and catchers all the time. I've got to see it up close, but uh, how much of that how much of that do you need to get yourself prepared? Do you need that extra week, or does that extra mean, week mean you need to pace yourself a little bit more? Well, I think that I think that extra week is is mainly for the pitchers to make sure their arms in shape before spring training games start. 
that's why the position players come in a little bit later. But it is nice for me as a catcher. Um, for example, last year I got to work with Cueto and Samarja a little bit more. Um, and this year I'll try to get Melanson down in the pen and just get familiar with them as quickly as possible. Do you get to have some input at this point as a veteran catcher, you know, with a with a veteran coaching staff and guys you've been with for a long time in, in Bochy and Dave Rigetti? Uh, do, they, do, do they talk to you during spring training about, you know, how's this guy looking, where's he at, to sort of get, get a sense of, of what they've got in the pitching staff? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's a... It's a collaboration. I feel like that's something that, that Dave Rigetti has has always made me feel very comfortable with. He's always communicated with me well um, with the pitchers and made me feel like I was a part of it even uh, from a young age. Uh, and how do you feel about, uh, you know, I, I guess everybody's sort of confident about their team heading into spring training. It's a fairly hopeful time, but uh, why, why do you think the Giants will win the World Series in 2017? Well, I mean, I, I just look around and I feel like, um, you know, we're bringing a lot of players back. I think guys are going to be comfortable with one another. And, um, I think the talent level is where where it needs to be to hopefully win a bunch of games in the postseason. I mean, I'm sorry, a bunch of games in the regular season. They go on in the postseason and, and uh, you know, take it one step at a time and see what we can do. Do you think that having the experience for so much of the team does give you a little bit of advantage once you once you get to the postseason? If you get to the postseason. Um, you know, that's an interesting question every time I get it because in 2010 we had to be the team that didn't have much postseason experience and we won. So, um, I don't know. I don't know really if you can say it's an edge or not. You know, I'm, I'm not sure um, if it is one way or another. Well, best of luck on the season and, and thanks again so much for joining. Okay, appreciate it. Thank you. All right, take care. Again, that was Buster Posey of the San Francisco Giants. We're going to have Andrew Joseph, my colleague from For the Win, on in the bottom half of the show. But before we move on, I want to say that Blue Apron is a sponsor of the For the Win podcast. Uh, they're actually doing a promotion with us. If you go to blueapron.com slash for the win, that's blueapron.com slash for the win, all spelled out one word for the win. Uh, you can get your first three meals for free. Uh, I am in the process of setting up my blue apron. I got my first delivery coming on Monday the 16th, so I will certainly let you know how it is. But uh, the website was super cool to, to set up. It was really easy, really easy to use. Uh, I'm getting some PBL style pork and seared chicken and mashed potatoes coming my way. Looking forward to tasting it. And if you don't know, it's it's kind of a cool idea. Uh, Blue Apron is a it's a, a company that sells you meals and and meals for you to cook yourself. For me, what's cool about it is that it's all portioned out so that you're not buying tons of an ingredient that you don't need uh, one of the for example the pork uh, it requires cilantro I find that whenever I cook with cilantro I use it once and then it kinda just gets thrown into my crisper and forgotten about and I wind up with like half of a of a thing of, of rotted out cilantro uh, that's not an issue here everything comes in the right amount that you need for everything to send you the spices if you don't have those uh, it seems like a cool way to try new recipes I'm looking forward to, to doing that and uh, certainly I'll tell you about it because uh, my my food and eating exploits tend to come up on this podcast. Uh, with that, I want to bring on uh, my buddy and our, my co-worker, Andrew Joseph, out in Phoenix. How's it going, Andrew? Doing fine, Ted. How are you doing? 
I am doing well. Uh, we, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm sort of new to this podcast since, since Nate left. And what we've been doing on Tuesdays is I've had some of our, our other colleagues. I've had Charles and Luke on, and I believe Hamill did it once too. Uh, and we cut da- count down our favorite things of the week. So I've prepped you for this. Just a little bit. All right, cool. Uh, <laughs> but I just want to remind everyone at home. But before we do, how's Phoenix? How's, are you in Phoenix right now? Yeah, I'm in Phoenix right now. Yesterday was great. It was like 71 degrees outside, had the patio door open, and I was writing about people being freezing in the NFL game. So it that was is, a pretty good good environment yeah. to be writing that in. It is so outrageously cold in New York right now. And, like, I hate talking about the weather, but it's it's at the point where now the weather is all you can talk about if you're outside at all because it's it's not pleasant. I it's a, This is a... One of the good times of the year to be in Phoenix versus being in the Northeast or the Northwest or the, uh, I guess, really the Midwest, too. Yeah, for sure. And th- that's like the thing, though, because the summers are terrible here. I mean, it's hot, but you get like nine months of the year where it's perfect, so it's totally worth it. And I'll be down there in like mid-March. That's generally a pretty t- pretty good time to be in Arizona as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then you get like what may it becomes intolerable to go outside yeah or sometimes yeah may usually it starts getting like really hot um sometimes it can be like as april as early as april or march where you start hitting 100 but and then it goes like all the way into october let me so. ask you is there a sandstorm season like if i want to get out there and make sure i get to see a cool sandstorm when does that happen the most, or is there is that just no rhyme or reason to it? Yeah, it's monsoon season. Like so, that's like a late July and August is is when you start seeing those dust storms, and those are crazy. Um, like when I, when I, when I first moved out there, I didn't even know those were like a thing. And you get like the alerts on your phone, and everybody freaks out. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, that's a fun like 2017 experience in life. Is when there is that whatever the alert is, when like everyone in the room gets it, and you see everybody sort of like looking around, being all confused or whatever, and then checking their phones and then laughing because you all got the same weather alert or whatever it is that's that's happening. And those alerts are like really obnoxious too. Like it's not just like a normal vibrate. It's like your phone's gonna explode. Yeah, I had that. I mean, it happened to me in Phoenix, and I was super psyched, because I thought, like, maybe we, I'd get to see a cool weather phenomenon that I don't get very often, but, uh, it wasn't, it was, I don't, it wasn't much of a sandstorm, it just kind of rained for a few minutes, and then it blew past. Yeah, it does that. Well, uh, I hope, you know, not, not too devastating, we don't want, like, damage, or people uprooted or anything, but I'd like to see, like, a pretty triumphant sandstorm, uh, so if the people controlling the weather are listening, uh, target mid-March for that. Uh, let's get to it. Uh, so I, as is our custom, just so you can uh, sort of get up to speed, I've been starting out with my first good thing of the week. I guess we can count them down and say that this is number six for the week. Uh, I, I haven't really put a lot of, t- of time into thinking about how I want to order them, but this is a cool thing, or actually a very strange thing, that our man Charles wrote about on the site. The Pelican's Creepy King Cake Baby, this is, I'm just reading the headline, Pelican's Creepy King Cake Baby mascot is back and delivering stuff to people's doors. Now, if you don't know, the New New Orleans Pelicans have had sort of a strange history with mascots in that they first had Pierre, they're 
fairly new team. Uh, of course, they, they had been the Hornets and they straight you know, New Orleans' history there. Uh, but they, they've been the Pelicans for a few years. They first had Pierre the Pelican, and Pierre was a very, very strange-looking bird. And then they sort of they, they gave Pierre a facelift and made him a little bit more family-friendly and less weird-looking. But at, at the same time, then they rolled out the King Cake Baby. And it is just, I feel like everybody says that every ma mascot is creepy, but this is the creepiest mascot. And I feel like it, it, the, it almost was like the Pelicans saw the way the original incarnation of Pierre just sort of fired people up with his creepiness and were like, let's think this through and come up with the single creepiest looking thing we can find. And what that is, is this giant sort of plastic looking baby with its mouth open and a really devilish look on its face and it comes to your house now and it brings you pastry so it's kind of this amazing dichotomy of this horrifying horrifying giant baby and then it's holding uh, king cakes which are completely delicious have you ever had a king cake andrew I don't think I have. I've been to New Orleans quite a few times, but I never got a hold of a king cake. So king cakes are mostly a Mardi Gras time thing. They're, you can get them now, I think, throughout the year if you go to the right place. But they're traditionally a Mardi Gras uh, type dish. And it's basically like a giant cinnamon roll is the way to think about it. Because it's got like a, a sort of very, very sweet frosting on top of a cinnamon pastry. They're incredible. And, of course, they have... Uh, traditionally, at least, there's a plastic baby jammed in there somewhere, and whoever gets the piece with the plastic baby wins the prize, or has to bring the king cake next year, or whatever the the ceremony is associated with it in your particular custom. But uh, I just happen to think the cake is delicious. It's cool looking because they dye it uh, Mardi Gras colors, the the icing at least, and. The idea of this giant terrifying baby coming up my walk, bringing me a cake, is, I don't know, that's, that's the sort of weird uh, sports teams moving into real life foray that I really appreciate. Yeah, like whenever you get those ceramic or plastic looking mascots, it just makes it even creepier. I think Oklahoma State has one too, that's just like insane looking. Uh, I'm all, you know, and, and like every mascot, they're sort of inherently creepy, right? Because they're like people dressed up as animals or people dressed up as storms or people dressed up as trees or whatever. But this baby, I mean, if you haven't seen it, look up New Orleans Pelicans King Cake Baby. It will haunt your nightmares. What do you got? Well, I got, um, so we were just talking about this before we came on, but it was, um, Nevada was down 25 points, you may have seen it, 25 points on the road at New Mexico. And at one point, like with 74 seconds left, they were down 14. And so what they did, they decided, oh yeah, we'll tie the game and hit six straight threes. And it was ridiculous. Some of those shots were like total circus shots, just throwing it up. And I think like their, um, their last two shots that ultimately tied the game were off bank threes, and then they went on and went in overtime. And this was one of those crazy things that you saw it happen because it was one of those West Coast games, so it was happening like late Saturday night where nobody was really watching. And then the next morning, somebody tweeted out like a, a cut video. And if you go on, on For the Win, you can see it. But if you go on, if you go watch this video, you can just see how it happened where you're down 14 points, a minute and 14 seconds left.
the game's pretty much over. Like, there's that's one of those situations where there's like no chance you can come back and win. And it it happened. They just hit three three after three in six six straight possessions. They just nailed threes and and tied the game. It was crazy. It is unlike anything I've really ever seen. It seems so bold for a college basketball team to even bother fouling when you're down by 14 with a, a minute left to play. Like, at that point, it's just like, ah, let them dribble it out, right? Like, there's, your chances of coming back are so incredibly slim that it just seems like it's a waste of everybody's time to even try at that point. And to that notion, I don't know if you are familiar with this, but this is a something I, I find myself checking a lot during NCAA tournament time. You know Bill James? Yeah. So Bill James uh, is, is best known as a like a leading baseball stat guy, but he also has an interest, actually you might know this because he has an interest in Kansas basketball, because he's a Kansas guy. So um, part of his interest in Kansas in, in basketball, and Kansas basketball specifically, but he has created this thing, the lead calculator, and he has a formula that determines, or that's supposed to determine, when a team's lead is safe in college basketball. And if you plug in, you know, a team winning by 14 with a minute and 11 seconds left, and the ball, they had the ball. Um, the, the, the Bill James calculation, and, and Bill James is about the smartest math guy you're ever going to find in sports, it says this lead is 100% safe. And yeah, they like, still lost it. I've never seen anything like that before. Yeah, there's like not even a chance, and it happened. It's one of those things. It's just like unreal. And then they, like when you go into overtime, like there's no way Nevada was going to lose at that point. Like they just came back from 14 points in 74 seconds. So they might as well not even play the overtime. And they ended up winning, but it was, it was one of those things where you're like, wow, how, does that, how does that even happen? It would have been a real gut punch of a way to lose if you came back <laughs> from, from down 14 with a minute left and then you lost in overtime. You, that's not a good feeling. Yeah, it really wouldn't be. And it must have been like a worse feeling for New Mexico because they had that game won. And it was at home. At home. You would, it was you would, at home. Yeah, at like, pit. I would It's like say, one of those places where you, like, go and watch a game. It's supposed to be one of the top venues in college basketball. And they blew that kind of lead there. I can't imagine what you feel like. And, you know, it's different if it's like a, you know, it's a regular season game. It's a conference game. It's not like it's the, uh, you know, the conference tournament or it's, or it's the, the NCAA tournament. But, man, that's a gut punch. What's the worst... What's the worst fan experience you've ever had? Like, can you ever remember going to a game where your heart was just absolutely broken? Um, I'd probably have to say, like, back in college. Um, so I went to Kansas, and you know that, but I do know now that. the whole world knows that, and they probably already did. But um, Kansas never lost a home game until my junior year of college. So they won. They won every single game at home. They had a 69-game home winning streak, going into a game against Texas. And Thomas Robinson's mom passed away the night before. And Kansas, like, you know, they were up all night uh, with T. Rob, and they came out the next day, and they like started out blowing out Texas. Like all they're playing on adrenaline, and then the lead kind of evaporated in the second half when they ran out of gas. And it was just one of those weird things because I was there at school for three years and I had never seen Kansas lose at home. And for whatever reason, CBS decided to put me on TV like when they were doing their crowd shots and I just looked like I saw a ghost. Like it was one of those <laughs> things where it was like I had no idea what was happening. You were the sad fan that they showed in the reaction? 
I, I was one of the sad fans. I, I wasn't as bad as some of the, when Kansas loses an NCAA tournament, they'll find somebody like dressed in a Jayhawk hat crying. But I wasn't that bad. I was just like standing there like what was going on. But that was probably the most devastating looking I've been in a sporting event. I can't really think off the top of my head my worst fan experience, but that had to be up there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to think about the worst, the worst game, I've, the worst loss I've ever seen. And like in person? Yeah, or, yeah. Yeah, in person. I mean, I can, I can, t- I can target the worst one in, I've seen on TV, because yeah, I remember sure. in, in 1988 when the Mets lost in the, in the playoffs to the Dodgers, uh, after, like, Ron Darling came out and just had a horrible first inning, Dodgers just piled it on, and I was, like, a child, you know, so I, I remember sleeping on my floor of my bedroom because I was so miserable that, like, I didn't feel like I deserved to sleep in my bed for some warped reason because, like, the Mets had done that to me, but I was trying to think specifically in terms of college basketball, and as a Georgetown guy, there are simply too many to list. It's just been like a steady onslaught of rope-a-dope uh, heartbreaking losses for the last 15 years. Man, more than that. More than that. Now, like, now we're going on like 17 straight years of just having Georgetown crush my soul. Basically every single year. Actually, I'm lucky in that the era in which I was actually at the school was really like their darkest years. And so I never really had my hopes all, up all that much. But um, since JT3 took over, John Thompson III, it has just been sort of steady heartbreak because uh, they always have really talented teams and they always have stretches of the season when it's like, wow, this team can really do something. Uh, and there's one year they went to the Final Four and that was awesome, uh, but still ends in heartbreak. It has always ended in heartbreak uh, as it has for every team I've ever rooted for. In any sport, that's my deal. Um, but let's move yeah, on. Yeah, like with, oh yeah, I was going to say, like with Dunk City, like you were probably like the one the one person that wasn't rooting for it to happen. I was the one was person, I, I was the one person who was not rooting for that to happen. That is that is absolutely true. Well, that's not true. I was one of all of the Georgetown fans who were not happening, who were not rooting for that to happen. But even I will admit that at, when it was happening, it was like, okay, this is pretty awesome. Like this Dunk City team is so cool that if you throwing, have to get embarrassed in an early throwing game, over the head alley oops in a in a three point game. Oh, it was so cool. It was so cool. Yeah. If you're gonna lose like that in a in the NCAA tournament, I would. That's a that's a cool team to lose to. I mean, it was also cool. Uh, I don't know if you go back to 2008, but Georgetown had their their big loss that year was to Steph Curry when he was like sort of a lesser known. I mean, he was a big scorer, you know, but he was playing for Davidson, and he he led uh, led Davidson past Georgetown. That was a fun one um, for yeah. losses for heartbreak. There's been a lot. Uh, but I'm going to go to my next thing, and okay. uh, my next thing is near and dear to my heart. It was a very brief and sort of uh, uh, understated announcement from a Japanese independent league baseball team that Manny Ramirez is returning to play in 2017 with the Kochi Fighting Dogs. It uh, makes me feel so good that Manny Ramirez apparently loves playing baseball as much as it looks like he loves playing baseball. Do we know the contract terms for this? We don't, but there's, there's just, I mean, 
You know, and, like, I don't, I don't know what his financial situation is, and, like, maybe Manny Ramirez needs money that badly, but I honestly can't believe that playing for an independent league team in Japan is Manny Ramirez's best route for making money, right? Like, because you could say, like, oh, he just needs the money, he just needs the money. If he just needs the money, like, someone's going to hire Manny Ramirez to do local car commercials. Someone's going to hire him to be an on-air talent for someone, right? Like, he's such a, a big baseball personality. I mean, we know he's coached and he's he's had some success with with coaching. Uh, he was in the Cubs. He was working with the Cubs minor leaguers a couple of years ago. They seemed to really like him, and it sounded like the Cubs for an office really liked him, so, you know, you would have to assume someone would give him a coaching job somewhere, uh, but no, it seems like I, I, I will I will take this news to mean that he just wants to continue playing baseball, no matter where or what level it is. That's totally fine. I mean, he's 44 years old, so you got. It'll be interesting to see like how he is because it, it's independently in Japan. So like, how good can that be? Right. It's like because it, you start you're thinking like, well, the the Japanese league, which is, you know, the top league in Japan, which is a, a good and competitive league, that kind of equates, and it's not it's not a perfect uh, correlation because there, there are all sorts of different particulars to it, but generally we think double uh, A sort of triple A type level for the Japanese league, and that's for the professional league, the best the best players there. This is indie ball in Japan. It's not even Japanese minor leagues. Um, that is pretty far down, and so you know he's already he's already done uh, one Asian circuit. We remember he played in Taiwan. Uh, that was fun. Um, or excuse me, he played in Korea. He Manny was playing in Korea, right? Um, no, I think he did. He, AP says he, he did Taiwan. Oh, I was 20, yeah, in was, 2013. You're right. Yeah, don't Ta second guess yourself. Yeah, it was Taiwan. I should have. I, <laughs> I should have bought it because the Korean league is higher up than than Taiwan. I guess I was surprised he he fell that far that quickly. But yeah, played in Taiwan. It was super fun. Uh, I kind of love Manny Ramirez just being like a slugger around the world. Like maybe after he can't play in Japanese indie ball anymore, he goes and plays in like that league that only sort of exists in Italy or something. I, I just want him to keep playing forever. Uh, I remember a prior favorite of mine, Ricky Henderson, was still playing independent ball at like 46 and still trying to make comebacks. Julio Franco still pops up once and now, uh, now and then. I yeah, I was going to mention I Julio think he Franco. may have played in this same league last year. Uh, in the He's Japanese. still playing. Yeah, he was still like player coach for someone, um, and I and I, and I would be cool with Manny Ramirez being that guy. He was just such a and like I know that he's a controversial guy. I know that he made some mistakes, but he was such a fun player to watch and such a fun character to follow that I want to see him hit more home runs, and I hope that he can hit some home runs for the Kochi Fighting Dogs. Yeah, it says as of a. 2015, Franco was was playing in Japan, and he's 58 right now. He is super old, and he was super old. He was still playing in the, in the majors as a super. Yeah, old he way, he yeah. wanted to play till he was 50, uh, and he blew right past it. Of course, uh, worth noting, and this is a a weird thing. Um, so Satchel Paige, who's of course like one of the greatest pitchers of all time, was like one of the great the great Negro League legends. He came back at age. 58, and it's the estimated age of 58, because no one was quite sure of his actual birth date, uh, for like a publicity stint. Uh, the, the Kansas City A's put him on the roster for a day in 1965 when he was 58 years old, and he threw three scoreless innings, which is so incredible to me. Yeah, that's crazy. 
what's your next thing? My next thing was um, I don't know if you if if you've caught it yet. It was so this film student in Germany put together this ad for Adidas, and it was like it was about like an aging marathon runner uh, living in a nursing home, and the dude just found his old pair of Adidas sneakers, and it kind of gave him the inspiration to start running again. And it just went over and over again where he was trying to, he put it on his old his old running his old running gear and try to run out the nursing home and be like physically stopped by the the mean staffers at the place. And eventually they confiscated his shoes and um, one of his friends gave it back to him and he ran out and it was like a pretty pretty inspirational and touching commercial and it was one of those things that kind of went viral and it was um. Uh, Huffington Post reached out to to the student director of this ad, and they they wanted to ask him if if he kind of tried to reach out to Adidas and send him the video and see if they wanted to use it. And he said he never heard back from Adidas, and it's it's almost like they kind of missed an opportunity there because that commercial went viral and everybody's like they should absolutely use it. So it was one of those this cool this cool videos that just pop up on the internet, and it was a really interesting thing to watch. It's incredible because it's 90 seconds long and it's yeah. like, it's got like a movie's worth of emotional turns. You know, like you sort of see this guy age and you like witness his struggles and it's like it's a really it's a it's a cool thing to watch. Um, and again, that's also up at for the win. Uh, why do you think this cuz I feel like there's other 90 second sort of inspirational videos. I mean, you're pretty good at finding things that are about to blow up online. Why do you think this one got to so many people? I think because it was relatable. Everybody ages. Everybody had things they wanted, they, they enjoyed doing when they were young and kind of want to hold on to those memories. So I think it's just relatable. Everybody has, whether it be parents or grandparents, and they've seen them age. And it's one of those things that kind of connected with everybody. And it did a really good job telling a story in 90 seconds. It was, it was unique. You, like, rarely see a commercial kind of hit home like that in such a short time. And, and it's funny to do, like, it's funny to, to think about it from, first of all, I guess the standpoint of being like, hey, I'm just going to make an Adidas commercial. Without without Adidas paying me to do that, I just, like, want to kind of make this, I got this idea for an Adidas commercial. I'm going to make an Adidas commercial. I'm not sure that that's how I'm spending my time personally, but hey, good for, you know, if that's how you want to express yourself, good for you. But you think about it from Adidas' standpoint, it's kind of interesting, because, like, why would they? I mean, why, I mean, like, it's, it's nice that, like, that they've, that they've got, and it's nice for this guy that it's blowing up, but why would Adidas even need to acknowledge this or let this become an authentic commercial for them, uh, or, like, an officially sponsored commercial? Because it's operating as a commercial for them, and it's getting to, like, hundreds of thousands of people right now. Yeah, see, I saw on YouTube the original video has like over 10 million views, so it, it's doing it's giving Adidas the awareness. But I think like the the good the good PR of like connecting with them would kind of kind of make them seem like the good guys here, because a lot of a lot of people are upset that Adidas isn't kind of jumping on opportunity. But yeah, also I mean, when you're I mean, when you're a company of that size, you have to realize like, I mean, I'm sure they realize it, but there's a legal process that goes into acquiring a commercial like that, whether it fits into like what they're doing or if they needed to reshoot any of it. So it was probably more complicated than be like, hey, we'll just put this video for like a major 
ad campaign. Like they have teams of people that are dedicated to that kind of thing. Right, and like, you know, presumably if Adidas, presumably the student filmmaker who made this wasn't paying that actor a ton and wasn't paying all the different people in the, in the commercials a, a ton to make it, and maybe if Adidas wants to get behind it, then, you know, I don't know what the, the German commercial union actors' rights are like, but presumably, you know, if, if there's a union shop, I know that in, in the U.S., you know, like if you're, if you're a big company hiring people to do commercials in the U.S., you have to use screen actors guild actors uh, you have to pay them at union rates maybe if adidas takes this on then you got to pay that guy at whatever the german standard rate is for commercials and you got to invest all this money but i just feel like i feel like there's got to be a way i feel like you're probably right there's got to be a way adidas can sort of cut this guy a check or cover some of the costs here considering that like you said like 10 million people have watched this viral adidas ad that adidas didn't even have to bother making or even ask for. Right. It's like an unsolicited ad just for them. And so it's very effective in that regard. It like makes people associate with Adidas and they didn't even have to ask for it. So I guess it worked out and it probably works out for the student too because he gets his name out there. So whether Adidas wants to collaborate with him on something different, I'm sure Nike will be like, we can get this guy. Adidas isn't going to. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> someone someone else right, like like the T Mobile dude. Like, hey you don't you're don't we're you're no longer the can you hear me now guy. Now you're doing sprint or whatever that guy was. Um, yeah. uh, I should say that I have at times been tempted to do and for as ridiculous as I feel feel like it is to just like have the the unpaid, unsolicited endorsements of products, that there are occasionally products that I enjoy so much. Well, obviously Taco Bell, I write about all the time because I love Taco Bell. Uh, but I this is something that also always happens to me in spring training is I I get to thinking like maybe I should just start videotaping. In unsolicited endorsements of products that no one asked me to review uh, on behalf of, and the two products, this is that I'm just like 100% fiercely all-time loyal to, brand loyal, will not go any other route uh, unless absolutely forced, Haribo gummy bears, just so by far the best gummy bear, and... Um, <laughs> Speakman AnyStream shower heads. If you check into a hotel and you get the Speakman AnyStream, you're like, I'm all set. I know I'm getting good pressure. I know I'm getting like great coverage. It's not going to be like a single lousy stream of water. And I know I'm going to feel clean for the entire time I'm in this place. So if those either of those companies wants my endorsement, they can uh, pay me a hefty fee and I'll, I'll happily uh, appear in a commercial. Or you can just count on me to continue repping your products for being awesome and thanking you for making good stuff and you could have given me like an hour to guess two brands that you would have endorsed and i would not have come up with those two those are the those are those are the two those are the two perfect products in my mind. It's just that's it. Those two: Haribo gummy bears and Speakman AnyStream showerheads. I once had a Speakman AnyStream showerhead uh, that I got. I swear to God, in the back room of a Brooklyn hardware shop, and the guy removed the governor thing that's supposed to limit the water stream. And uh -huh. it was like a typhoon. Like, you got into the shower. I remember the first time, I can't even repeat the things my roommate said. The first time he stepped in, not expecting that in the shower and turned it on. And it was, it was like, it, 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 you couldn't turn the shower all the way up because it, it, 
literally hurt uh, with how much water was coming down. And it was like being power washed every time you took a shower. It was incredible. The Speakman Any Stream really can't say enough about that product. <laughs> uh, okay, what, do you, what else you got? Um, so we were going to talk about, I mean, you're, you're coming to Arizona in a few months, so we gotta we got to think about our sandwich scene that you're going to... We do. And i got to say that in terms of the Southwest, I was in New Mexico recently. New Mexico set the bar real... I feel like New Mexico and Arizona are obvious brother-sister states, right? And New Mexico has set the bar real high for food in the Southwest. What did you get in New Mexico? Uh, lots of New Mexican food, right? They've got the green chili on everything. They sell green chili... They, they have green chili peppers, which are native to New Mexico, which they're super proud of. They have them everywhere. It's like you can't own, you can't operate a restaurant without serving green chili, even if you go into the, like I went to a church's chicken, uh, mostly just to use the restroom on, while driving through and, you know, just got like a, a Diet Coke, but noticed on the way out that they were selling green chilies at church's chicken, chicken which is just a, a national or a regional chain that doesn't, in New York they don't have green chilies. You need to have that if you're selling food in New Mexico, and that fascinates me. What do we got, what's going to be good for me in Arizona? Well, right where I live, there's a place called the Grand Orange, which has like some crazy rotisserie where they put like whole turkeys. It's not, not like rotisserie chicken, or they even do like pastrami on it. They make some crazy sandwiches. And that would be a place I'd take you if you can't when you're in town. we got to check that place out. Have maybe. you been to Ike's place? I have been. What do you think? They that's have those. Those are, that's from like San Francisco, and they started opening a ton of them. Like one was in Tempe when I was living in Tempe, and that was convenient because they like stay open late, and they have like 80 different kinds of sandwiches. And every location has a different one. Like they have like ones that were more ASU-oriented. Like they do like Pat Tillman sandwiches, or like Sun Devil sandwiches, um, and then they had like the Giants players still, so it's it's different like every location you go to. So that's a good option also. Um, but it is funny that you mentioned the green chilies because like when I grew up in Atlanta and then went to school in Kansas, like I can never find green chilies on anything. Then I move out here and it's like on burgers and sandwiches, and even like you're at like a hotel in Arizona and they do like those omelet bars, you can get green chili in your omelet. It's, well, like, of course, it's such yeah. a regional thing. It's awesome. Uh, is there a food... I mean, how long have you lived in Phoenix? Um, almost... See, I graduated 2012 and moved here, so wait. So almost five years. Alright, so is there a food that's like unique because it, it's it's hard to find and I feel like Phoenix maybe isn't the best city for this because there's not it's a it's very very heavily uh, or at least a very it's a very new feeling place right like a lot of a lot of Phoenix's population is fairly new there so maybe it's harder to find like deeply embedded foods is there like a regional cuisine to Phoenix that I need to try yeah it's kind of like what you're saying and like the Mexican food's really good here um, southwestern food, but yeah, I don't, I can't really think of something that's like, this is Phoenix food, like something signature to Phoenix, which, I mean, it's not a bad thing, they have a lot of good restaurants, but it's not like they have, like, po' boys or Philly cheesesteaks. It's a fairly good 
crossroads for fast food, though, right? Because I feel like basically all of the fast food places, you get, like, the Midwestern places, like Culver's, sort of, like, trickling down, but then, yeah. like, in and out and such, and Carl's Jr. You and get Del Whataburger Taco here, too. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it draws on the fast foods of really, uh, it's just sort of like the, of the central United States, of the western United States, and then also from Texas, and Phoenix is sort of this crossroads in the middle where all of those things are, so that's cool. Yeah, no, if you like fast food, this is a good place to live. So that's your Definitely. top thing of the week is Phoenix food, but you're not going to yeah. what is the best thing I can eat in Phoenix? The best thing you can eat in Phoenix? What is the best meal you've ever had in Phoenix? Because this is, this is going to be our number one thing. Oh, this is, man, you're putting me on the spot. The best I, meal I've ever had. You're right. I am putting you on the spot. I want to see, let's see if you can think on your feet and tell me the best meal in Phoenix. So it's a, the, like, or the most, like, if you have, like a, like, a special event and there's one particular place you like to go where they have the best food, what is that place? Well, I, I like steak, so I was obviously going to choose a steakhouse, but you can get steak anywhere. So you can get I, I steak anywhere. Yeah, you can get steak anywhere. Um... There's some places like, one is, uh, let's see, Mission at the Elements, which is like on a mountain, and they have like some really good food, but, and they, they do like a Southwest twist on everything, so that's a good spot, but it's like fancy, so I can't really think of the, the best place that I just like go to for like a casual meal, probably be like Oso, which is a, which is a brewery, and they have this thing called the AZ Burger, which is, um, it's like fresh jalapenos and like un fried onion strings and like and uh, cream cheese on a burger. So it's almost like a jalapeno popper, but it's a burger. Yes, yeah, you know that, that, that's now really you're good. speaking my language. I like I like the sound of that. Uh, again, in New Mexico, I had something very similar, but instead of like a, the cream cheese being inside the the popper, uh, so and maybe this is like this too. It was is the the jalapeno is it grilled or is it breaded? No, it's fra It's like just cut raw. I mean, okay. you can get a grill too, but I think they do it so in this place, where it's like cut raw. In this place, it was a green chili, and it was like flattened out and breaded and fried, and they put that on the burger, and that was an incredible burger innovation. Yeah, no, that because sounds really good it, it too. It adds like a crunchiness to it plus the pepper flavor, but I would definitely check out a sort of jalapeno pep popper inspired burger. I like Phoenix. Phoenix is a nice place to there are worse places. I'll give you this. There are worse places to be than Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, definitely. Um well cool. Andrew, thanks for thanks for joining the show. Oh, thanks for having me on, Ted. Uh, it is my pleasure. You can uh, rate and review the show on iTunes, uh, subscribe on SoundCloud or on Stitcher, hopefully soon on, on Google Play as well. Uh, we can check out everything. You can check out everything Andrew and I are writing at For the Win. It's ftw.usatoday.com. Andrew, how can they find you on Twitter? You can follow me at Andy Joseph. The O is a zero because of a really common name, but it's, it's at Andy Joseph. Well, I will follow you there, and good thing you've noted that. I do already follow you there. So uh, I didn't realize, I think, that the O is a zero. That's very clever. Yeah, no, I tried, I tried like, every <laughs> option that was close to my name. Had to go with that one. Um, speaking of which, I am at, I am at OG Ted Berg. Um, all of our stuff comes out through the For the Win for, uh, Twitter account, at For the Win. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Buster Posey. And thank you, Andrew. And I hope to see you soon when I am in Phoenix. Yeah.
Oh, absolutely. Peace out.